0: So, uh, we have been in the book of Genesis since pretty much the beginning of time, right? So, we've been in the book of Genesis and we've been just going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, looking at the story of God and his relationship with people, um, starting all the way from the beginning of creation. And uh, along about chapter 12, we get introduced to this guy named Abraham. And since then, we've been looking at this theme of what does it look like to have a journey of faith? What does it look like to walk with God in the long run? And so we get these little glimpses of Abraham's life starting in chapter 12 and moving forward, and then we get glimpses of his son Isaac's life, and then we get glimpses of Jacob's life, and that's kind of the way the book of Genesis has been developing. But something I noticed, and I want to make sure that we're all sort of on this page Tradition, as you know in the ancient Near East, tradition determined That the inheritance, the blessing, the headship of the family was passed on to the firstborn male, right? So the first son is the one who traditionally inherits a double portion of his father's estate. He becomes the new head of the family or the clan, if you will. He's the chief heir. He's going to receive the blessing of his father. Whatever blessings the father has received in his life get passed on down to that firstborn son, and we talked about this quite a bit. Um, But in the story of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, that has been unfolding in Genesis, um, it seems like God is trying to make a point. God comes along in chapter 12 of Genesis and out of nowhere, for no apparent reason, chooses Abram, right? Right? He's a pagan, he's living among pagans, he doesn't seem to be seeking after God in any way that we know of. As far as we know, he's never even heard of the one true God, right? And God comes along and for no reason that is given just goes, "You know what, dude, you're my man." And he picks him and he says, "I'm going to bless you. And not only am I going to bless you, but I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth through you. I'm going to make you a great nation, right? And for no reason at all, he just blesses Abraham. And when Abraham finally has kids, who is his firstborn son? Ishmael, right? Ishmael is the firstborn. Remember, he takes matters into his own hands. He's not going to wait on God. And Ishmael is the result of that, right? Ishmael is the firstborn. But who's the one that receives the blessing? Isaac, right? And as we keep on going, we see that uh, when uh, Isaac has kids, Who is his firstborn son? Esau. Esau. And yet who is the one who receives the blessing? Jacob. And as we continue in Genesis, later when Jacob has sons, who's Jacob's firstborn son? Ah, Bible scholars, come on. Reuben, right? Reuben is Jacob's firstborn son. You all know that because we all talk about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Reuben, right? (laughs) No, we don't, right? So, uh, who receives the great blessing in that family? Joseph. Is Joseph the second born? Third born? Fourth born? No, I'll save you time. He's the 11th born son. The 11th born son gets the blessing in that family. It's almost as if God is trying to teach us something. His blessing and his calling on our lives is not based on anything that we bring to the table. It's not based on any qualification that we have. It's not based on anything we do, it's not based on anything we have done. It's not based on anything we could do to earn it. There's nothing we could ever do to deserve God's calling, nothing we could ever do to deserve God's blessing. There's nobody who's qualified to receive that blessing from God. God's calling and God's choice of blessing is based purely on grace. Can somebody say amen to that? Amen. And it's his choice, not our accomplishment. It's not that he looks and goes, all right, I guess I gotta have you and you, you're the firstborn and you're, no, he says, listen, I'm going to set my love on who I'm gonna set my love on. There's a verse in Acts ten thirty four. you don't have to look it up, it says this, God is no respecter of persons, Now, that doesn't mean God has no respect for us. What that means is that God does not prejudicially judge between people. There is no person because of his um, position in life. There is no person because of his lineage. There is no person because of his good works. There is no person because of his religious uh, commitment. There is no person because of anything that God looks at and goes, wow, you're the best. It's simply based on grace. In Exodus 15, he told Moses, he goes, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And that's as much explanation as he gives us about why somehow by his amazing grace, he has set his love on us. And so do you know what that means? It means you and I don't deserve to be here but by the grace of God, here we are. It it means we don't deserve to be a part of his blessing, but by his incredible mercy, we're dropped right in the center of his blessing, even though we are not the firstborn. According to Romans 8, who's the firstborn? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn among all creation, right? And he is the one who is highly exalted. He is the one who is in first place. He is the one who is worthy. He is the only begotten son of God. And so Jesus is the firstborn, and yet, just like we see with the patriarchs, it is not just, you don't have to be the firstborn in order to inherit the blessings of the firstborn. Because we have Jesus as our great high priest, he passes on the blessings of the firstborn to us. Is that awesome? I'm just so turned on by the fact that God has decided that somehow what Jesus deserves, God's going to give us. And, And all of that because once upon a time on a cross at a place called Calvary, he decided that what we deserve, he would give to Jesus. It's just an awesome, amazing thing. And I don't want us to somehow get so lost in the book of Genesis and this ancient story about people so far ago that it has nothing to do with us that we forget it has everything to do with us. It's by grace that we're here. We never deserve mercy. Abraham didn't deserve to be chosen and blessed. Isaac didn't deserve to be chosen and blessed, Jacob didn't deserve to be chosen and blessed, Joseph didn't deserve to be chosen and blessed, and you and I don't deserve it either, but here we are. Isn't God good? When you look at Abraham, you think he's a pretty good guy, but he does mess up a lot. And then you look at Isaac, you go, man, remember in his early days how much faith he had? And then as he gets older and and more sort of sure of himself and and has a lot more resources and all that sort of thing, he begins to make the same kinds of mistakes that we saw his father making. And Jacob hasn't done anything good in the story at all so far, and he's roughly 80 years old at this point. Not exactly comic book superheroes. And that's one of the things I love about Scripture, as I say again and again, God gives us his heroes, warts and all, so we can relate, so we understand that it's not about the people, it's about the God of the people. All right, all of that was for free. This is uh, Genesis 28, all right? Let's get to Genesis 28. First book of your Old Testament, just open up and start turning, you get to Genesis 28, and let's let's follow along as I read beginning in verse 1. So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Now, before we go any further, we should just think back for a second to chapter 27 and remember what happens at the end of chapter 27, right? He gets the blessing, which he, he basically uh, steals, right? He gets the blessing that should have been his brothers and it's given to him and his brother finds out, and he weeps and cries, and his father's mad, and everybody's upset. And his brother Esau says, now my only point in life is to kill that dude. I'm going to make him pay, right? And mom hears this, and so she says, hey, look, you got to get out of here. You, you've got to go. you got to run. Go to my relatives in a faraway land. Stay with them for a few days, it says, until your brother calms down, and then I'll call, call for you and you can come back. She never sees him again. We're going to see that he's not gone for a few days. He's gone for many years. And, um, and then she goes to her husband, and she says, hey, listen. Look at verse 46 of chapter 27. Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm tired of living because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth, like these from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? This is the most manipulative lady I have ever seen. Oh my gosh, I just can't live another day if my, son, if my second son marries a loser wife like my first son did right? Remember what happened? Esau had gone off and married these two pagan women from among the people of the land, and she's just beside herself. I'm guessing they had just had a family dinner or something, and she had to be around her daughters in law again. And She's just like, oh man, I can't believe these people are part of my family. We can't let Jacob marry one of these people, right? So please, Isaac, I'll die if you don't do something, right? So that's where we get verse 1 of chapter 28. Isaac calls him and blesses him and says, don't take a wife from around here. Verse 2, arise, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, of my mother's father, and from there take to yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he also give you the blessings of Abraham, so that uh, uh, to you and to your descendants with you, that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padanaram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Now, verse six, Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padanaram Aram to take to himself a wife from there and that when he blessed him, he charged him saying, you will not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padanaram. Aram. So Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan displeased his father Isaac and Esau went to Ishmael and married besides the wives that he had Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Okay, let's just get through this quick. First of all, directions are given to him. You're gonna go to the same place where where, uh, Rebekah came from, right? You're gonna go to her land, to her relatives. She's got a brother there, he's your uncle Laban. Go see Uncle Laban and find a wife from among those people. That's how Isaac got his wife, right? And, he, and then we see in verses 3 and 4, the blessing repeated. May you be blessed. May you receive the blessing of Abraham. May you become a great nation. And so this blessing is being pronounced on him. And in, in verse 5, you see his response. He gets up and goes, right? And then in verses 6 through 9, what we get is Esau being Esau, right? He's roughly 80 years old, and he's still acting like a teenager, he overhears that uh, my parents don't like a certain kind of women, so I'm going to go marry me another one of those. That's what he does. His sole reason for doing it is to make his parents angry. Now, does that sound like a rebellious teenager? I'll show them, right? That's exactly what he's doing. And he goes off, and he doesn't just pick any, any pagan woman from the land. He actually goes to the people of Israel. Ishmael, Ishmael, the, the one who was cast off, the one who is the, the uh, shall we say, the rival of his brother, right? And he goes to Ishmael and marries a cousin from among Ishmael's people. And why did he do it? To make his parents mad. Bitterness is a horrible thing, it just insists on being your master. He just keeps making life decisions for all the wrong reasons. Now, don't forget this. Jacob is filthy rich, right? His dad is the richest guy in the region, okay? So let's just say he is like the son of Bill Gates, He is super, super, super rich and has already been determined that he is going to be the heir getting a double portion of his father's estate. And they got that blessing when they thought his father was about to die. They didn't know his dad was going to live another 35 more years, right? And but, so the money hasn't transferred to his account yet, but he's already living the high life. He's already the eldest uh, son or the, the second eldest son who is in the place of the eldest son in the home of the rich man. He's living in the palace. They have chefs. They have butlers. They have maids. They have chauffeurs. And that's his life. He's doing really, 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 really well living the good life on daddy's dime. But he has to leave. And why does he have to leave? Because he started this whole thing with his brother through deceit and trickery and treachery that that actually put a split in the family, and now he's literally running for his life. He has the blessing, he is the chosen one, but he's not gonna be living like it. Verse 10. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran... He came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. He took one of the stones of the place, put it under his head, and lay down in that place. This is the rich kid. This is his situation. He's made such a mess of things that he has to take off now. And actually, in chapter 32, verse 10, it tells us that when he took off, he left without anything except his staff. He had a stick in his hand, and that was it. He didn't have a lunch that mommy packed for him. He didn't have any servants. He didn't have an entourage that would normally travel with somebody like this. He had none of those things. It was him and a stick in his hand when he took off. He was running for his life. And now he finds himself sleeping by the side of the road with a rock for a pillow. That's his situation that he's created for himself. He had lied and cheated and stole and defrauded his own family members. Why? So he could get the wealth and the power and all of that blessing. And what was the result? He flees in a moment's notice with just his staff in his hand. And and think about his mom too, Rebecca. Her favorite son was everything to her. She couldn't stand to be away from him. She couldn't stop meddling in his life. She would stop at nothing to make him happy, whatever it took to make him happy. And now he's sleeping on a rock in the middle of the wilderness, and she's never going to see him again, all because of her plan and his carrying out of that plan. And I can't help, you know, these stories, they give us this narrative. They're an interesting story. You could make a movie out of any of these chapters. And yet you go, okay, but what does it have to do with us? What, what, can, what can I learn from this? How is this going to change my life? And so I keep seeing these lessons. And one of this big practical lessons I see in this is if you're willing to fully trust God, you never have to worry about provisions. And yet, if you want to take matters into your own hands, especially if you're going to lie, cheat, steal, and deceive to do it, you have to live with the consequences And we see this in our lives today. How many times have siblings become estranged from each other while fighting over mommy and daddy's estate? It happens again and again and again. And it's not because they're bad. It's not because they're greedy. It's not because they're anything. It's just that there's something in us that says, I got to get my share. And getting my share can become more important than loving my brother, than loving my sister, than being in a relationship with my family. and and families split over this kind of stuff. You can either trust God to be your source of supply and therefore do what's pleasing to him, Or you could take matters into your hands and finagle and file lawsuits and and hide things and do all that kind of stuff. I I had a friend who, uh, she was from Germany, and so uh, as her mother was getting older, she would go back to Germany to visit, and finally it was very clear that we were down to the last few months of her mother's life, and she was in sort of uh, some version of hospice care, and so... Uh, Her kids were coming back to the house to visit over those last few months, and she would fly back to Germany, and she would tell us what was going on when she came back. And what they did was they devised a system where if there's anything in the house that you want, you put a sticker on it. And the stickers were color-coded, and each kid had a different color sticker. And so when you were there visiting, if you saw that you really wanted this china cabinet, you would put your sticker on the china cabinet or, if the, you know, this, whatever. And, and so there's stickers sort of on the underside of all the tables and all that kind of stuff as the weeks are going by. And every time she made a trip, what she found was her sticker had been removed and another sibling sticker had been put on it. And and this is an old friend. We lost track of her. I haven't talked to her in years. But the last time I talked to her, she was not speaking to any of her siblings. And it was two or three years after her mother's death. Guys, the stuff we do because we're afraid that if we don't somehow take matters into our own hands, God won't provide for our needs. Never forget Philippians 4.19. My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. He wants to supply our needs. So Jacob is is lying along the roadside. That's where he left him. His head's on a rock. He's probably feeling pretty low right about now. When something really strange happens, he has a weird dream. Look at verse 12. He had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, "'I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, "'and the God of Isaac.'" The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth and will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the lord is in this place and i did not know it for he was afraid and said how awesome is this place this is none other than the house of god and this is the gate of heaven now now go back to verses 12 and 13 and just look as this dream begins as god reaches out to jacob look at the introduction that god makes verse 12 I had a dream, behold a ladder, and there's angels on it, verse 13, and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, he's introducing himself, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. That's how God introduces himself to Jacob. Jacob is 80 years old, give or take. He has lived in the house of the great patriarch Isaac his whole life. And yet, when he has this encounter with God, it is somehow incumbent upon God to introduce himself. And when he introduces himself, he does not say, as he does in other places, I am the Lord your God. He says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. And it stops. 80 years old, and this is the introduction. Hey, you probably don't recognize me. So let me just tell you who I am. I'm the God of your grandfather and the God of your father. Now, he was 80. He grew up in a God-fearing home he had been given this blessing. He certainly knew about the God of his grandfather and the God of his father. He had heard about this God all of his life. But how many of you know that it is entirely possible to know a lot about God and not know God at all? That was his situation. He knew a lot about God, but he didn't have a relationship with God. He knew the stories, he knew the traditions. He probably even believed intellectually in the God of his fathers, but he didn't know him yet. And we're gonna see more about that later, but as we go down in verses 14 through 17, um, God comes and says, listen, I am gonna bless you I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to bless your descendants. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth through you. I'm going to give you all this land. Don't worry. I know you're on the side of the road with your head on a rock right now, but don't worry. I'm your God and I keep my promises and I made a promise to your grandfather and I made a promise to your father and now I'm making that promise to you. I am never going to forget about you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to keep all my promises and I'm going to make you a great man and i'm going to make you a great nation. Look at how many times he he uses the word will beginning in verse 14. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and the east and the north and the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you. And wherever you go, I will bring you back to this land. And I will not leave you until I have done all that I promise you. God comes along and goes, look, I know it looks bleak right now. I know it looks tough right now. I know you don't know what's going on. And I know you don't even really know who I am. But I'm going to tell you something. I will make good on my promises. How encouraging must that dream have been. Don't we sometimes just need a good dose of encouragement to get through the day? I mean, how many of you have had a day in the last week or two where you're just like, you know what, I need to be encouraged right now. I feel like I'm not going to make it right now. I I just don't know how we're going to overcome these trials right now. I just don't see how anything good could be made out of what's going on in my life right now. How great would it be to have God himself come along and go, hey, it's me. I want to remind you of something. I've had my eye on you since before you were conceived. I have a plan for your life that if I told it to you, it would absolutely explode your mind. And I am gonna make good on every promise that I have ever made. And I know you're hurting right now and I know you're sick right now and I know you're worn out right now and I know you're broke right now and I know your relationships are falling apart right now. I know you're lying on the side of the road with your head on a rock right now. But let me tell you something, I'm God and I love you. You can count on me. I'm going to do it. How awesome would it be to have God come along and say that. Here's God waving his arms at Jacob. Hey, do you see me? It's me. You're living like I don't exist. Don't forget about me. Don't forget about the promises. I love how God keeps reminding these men. This is very familiar, isn't it? He had the same talk with Abraham like 20 times. And then he had the same talk with Isaac a whole bunch of times. And now he's having this talk with Jacob. God just keeps coming along and reminding, don't worry, it's not about you. It's not about your circumstances, not about your problems. It's about me. Sometimes the real problem is not our circumstances. It's our focus. It's easy to look at the wrong things. And I've been talking about this so much, about how we can't judge God in light of our circumstances. We need to judge our circumstances in light of who God is. And so I was thinking, how can I help everybody with this? And I actually have a handout for you. So I need you three guys to help me, okay? This is what happens when you pick on me. Now you have to do stuff, okay? You take care of that uh, section. You take care of the middle section, please, Rachel and Robbie. You get that section. This is just something for you guys to take home, okay? You can stick it on your refrigerator, tuck it in your Bible, put it on your bathroom mirror, do something. What it is is a list of a few things that are true about God. Just a few things that are true about God. And, and it's not an exhaustive list. It's not a theology class. It's just a list of a few things that are true about God. Like God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is perfectly wise. God is completely loving. God is always merciful. God is always gracious. You guys, we will get encouraged if we remember who God is. Don't forget who God is. And again, these are just a few truths about God. Man, I hope it inspires you to get into your Bible and go, what else is true about God? Because the more we develop a right picture of who God actually is, the more we will worship the true God and not some false God that we sort of made up in our minds, some conglomeration of a smorgasbord of religious ideas that we stick together and go, I want a God like this. How many times have I talked to somebody and they're like, well, the God that I want to worship is, and I go, well, look, you can either worship the God you want to worship or you can worship God. God. Right? God is God. And we need to remember who God is. So that's just, a, that's just a tool for you. Take it, use it however you want. Look up the verses that are on there. Again, just a mention of verses, not all the verses to, on those subjects. But I just want you to have a little bit of something that every time your circumstances get to where they're just rising up around you like a tunnel and all you can see is your circumstances, I want you to stop, pull out this list and go, wait a second, I need to see the God who is beyond my circumstances. And I trust that God will use it to bless you. So, God came to Jacob. God initiates the contact. God starts the relationship. God introduces Himself. God made him some promises. Man, that must have been encouraging. And yet, look at verse seventeen, and and look at uh, Jacob's response. He was afraid. And of all the things I would have thought it would say about Jacob, afraid is not the word I would have picked. God just comes and goes, dude, it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. I've got your back. It's, your whole life is laid out in front of you. And I'm telling you, it's going to be awesome. Not only are you going to have an amazing life, not only are you going to be blessed, but all through the generations People are gonna be blessed because of you. I mean, it's awesome, and you can know me, the one true living God, and it says, and when he awoke, he was afraid. Of all things, afraid. Why was he afraid? Was this some kind of reverence? I don't know. Was it it the kind of afraid that is like terror? I don't know. People have both of those responses when they're encountered by God. But it is interesting that it doesn't say when he woke up that he was encouraged. It doesn't say when he woke up that he was at peace. It doesn't say when he woke up he was filled with joy. It says that he was afraid. And there's a very real sense in which we should all be afraid once we know about the one true God, but we're not in relationship with him. We're still not letting him be Lord of our lives. Sometimes ignorance is bliss. But if you have the blessing that God has introduced himself to you, if you have the blessing that God has begun to reveal himself to you, if you have the blessing that God has begun to just stick his finger in your heart and stir a little bit and you're starting to become more aware of spiritual things, and and you happen to be here today hearing from the Word of God about the God of the universe and the plan that He has for your life, if you happen to be so blessed as to be in that situation, it is my prayer that if you don't know that God, you will be afraid. And if you know that God, that you will be encouraged. And so this is part of what God does. He reaches out to us and he doesn't just go, hey, by the way, if you'd like to add me to your life, sometimes people enjoy that. (laughs) No, he comes along and goes, you are toast without me. And I know we're not supposed to preach like that because people don't want to come back to church. But unfortunately, that's what the Bible says and it doesn't seem like church growth was its highest priority. See, God is reaching out to us to say that the choice between knowing and following Him or knowing about Him and rejecting Him is the biggest choice any of us will ever make. And we had better take it seriously. And look how he responds, verse 18. So Jacob rose early in the morning and he took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. This is a, some sort of religious ritual. He called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been Lutz. Now Bethel means house of God. When Jacob made a vow, saying, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take, and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. God God bridges the gap makes the introduction, promises the world, and invites him to trust him. And his response is an if-then statement. If you watch out for me, feed me, give me clothing, give me a place to stay, keep me comfortable, blah, 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 and bring me back to my father's house in safety, then I will give you the honor of being my God. <clears throat> Essentially, he's saying, I'll decide later. I'll decide later whether I'm gonna submit my life to this God. I've known about him all these years and it's not made much difference to me. And now he's basically coming to me and going, look, I have a plan for your life. Are you in or are you out? And my response is, I'll decide later. I'll see how it goes. Now he's sure God exists. It's no longer a question. He's had this encounter with God. But he's not sure if he wants to trust him. He's not sure if he wants to know him, to be in relationship with him. See, it's great to keep God at arm's distance. That's what so many of us want to do. We go, yeah, look, I believe in God. And I'm sure we'll work all this out one day. You know, if I get to heaven, you know, we'll, we'll have a talk. And he's a nice God. I'm sure he'll understand. And, and you know what? Easter, Christmas, that kind of stuff, I'm good with all the Christian holidays. And, you know, if you want to pray before the meals, I'll bow my head and all that kind of stuff. It's not like I don't know about God. It's not like I don't believe in God. It's not like I have no respect for God. But I'm not going to make him central to my life. I'm not going to submit the control of my life to him because that's a whole different thing, and I'm not so sure I want to do that. You know what I'd like to do, honestly? Eat, drink, and be merry, and then, God, if you could give me a five-minute warning before death, (laughs) then maybe we can do this relationship thing. And, And we laugh at that. I'm telling you, I hear that from people all the time. And I've been by a lot of deathbeds. And sometimes people come to know Jesus on their deathbed. And it's an amazing, glorious thing. And sometimes they don't. And at this point in his life, Jacob's around 80 years old, and he still doesn't have a personal relationship with God. And so it's no wonder he keeps trying to do things his own way. It's no wonder his life is characterized by deceit and treachery at every turn. He's been trying to do things on his own. He's been trying to live life on his own terms. He's been trying to make his own rules. He's been taking matters into his own hands. And, and the only one who has ever really, uh, that he has ever really trusted in is himself and maybe his mommy. And that's it. And he was so dependent on himself, so dependent on his mommy, so dependent on his daddy's wealth and power and position and inheritance that he never really had to learn to depend upon God. And he'd been paying the price. And by the way, this is a very real danger for us. Maybe more so than any people group in the history of the world this is a very real danger for us we are spoiled right i mean we we live we're, we're in the top 1 or 2% of the wealthiest people in the history of the world and i know you're having trouble making rent this month i'm telling you if you have a roof over your head And a refrigerator in your house, whether there's anything in it or not, that puts you in the top 85% of the richest people in the world. We are materially spoiled so much that we take for granted what it is to be blessed by God materially, right? And how wonderful, how thankful I am that we're so materially blessed. And yet, the enemy is always at work trying to take what God means for a blessing and use it to destroy us. We are spoiled. And when you have the illusion of needing nothing, it's easy to think you don't need God. Like he's optional. He's like an addition. You you can either go with the backup camera in your new car or go without it. Either way, it's gonna be a nice new car. And we treat God like that. He's just an addition we can make to our lives. Guys, we are deceived by how blessed we are. And we need God desperately. And so many of us, because of his blessings, ironically, don't know how much we need him. Now, who is Jacob at this point? He is an immature guy who knows about God, but he's never really come to know him and walk with him and trust him. And my friends, that is a miserable place to be. None of us experiences peace and contentment and joy until we raise our hands and surrender and say, you get to be God and I'm gonna quit trying to fight for this position. I have a dear friend, um, he and his wife, years and years ago, they they had a contractor in their home to do a bunch of work. He's there every day, you know, if you've ever had a contractor in your house, they'd never leave. I'm pretty sure contractors do this so they don't have to pay rent anywhere. They just stay in your house. Anyway, so these contractors there and he's coming back every day for weeks and weeks and weeks doing the work that he has to do at the house. The contractor happens to be a follower of Jesus. And so as they will sit down and enjoy a bottle of water together or have a meal together and getting to know this contractor, he's telling them about Jesus and as time goes on, the days go by, the weeks go by, and he just keeps witnessing and sharing Jesus, and eventually they go, how do we come to know this Jesus? And there, in their kitchen table with their contractor, he and his wife bow their head and give their lives to Jesus and are, are um, saved. And it's this amazing thing. And here's what he says when he tells the story. He goes, and what followed was the worst 12 months of our lives. You know why? The contractor finished his job, he put his tools away, he loaded up his truck, he waved goodbye, and he left. They had no Bibles, they had no church, They had no teaching, they had no one to disciple them, they had no awareness of what it was to walk with God, they had just had this encounter with God in which they invited Him to be their Lord and Savior, but beyond that they knew nothing. So now the Holy Spirit is in them, but they're continuing to live the way they have always lived, and they said, that was the most miserable year of our lives. Because when you're continuing to live the way you lived before you knew God, guess what, your sin is no fun anymore. All of a sudden your conscience is pricked by things that never bothered you before. And, and, and you can't enjoy the life the way you used to live it, but if you don't start living life with Jesus the way he designed you to live it, you're gonna be caught in no man's land. And I am just afraid. That churches across America today, this morning, are packed full of people, many of whom have knowledge of who God is and are involved in some religious way, but have never really let him be Lord of their lives. And until he's Lord of your life, you will be miserable. And so you may have just wandered in here today like, man, it's hot out there. I'm going to go and then probably have some air conditioning in that place. And you're just like, wow, I did not need to know this. (laughs) Now it's going to be worse for me, right? And I know this stuff now. Hey, guys, listen. The reason God is telling us these things from his word is because he wants us to live out the blessing, not just know about it. When you know about the blessing and you're not living in it, It's a miserable, miserable way to live. So where do you find yourself today with regard to saving faith? Where do you find yourself today with regard to Jesus being Lord of your life? Where do you find yourself today with regard to actually submitting to him and him being the king and you being the follower? Do you find yourself sort of in that investigative phase? If you do, I applaud you. God bless you for taking seriously the opportunity to investigate this. And you know what? If you have questions, if there are things, I mean, fundamental things that really in your heart and in your mind, you're like, I don't understand how this can be true. If you have questions, I encourage you, don't back up from those questions. Ask them. Find somebody who knows their Bible well and sit down with them and talk with them and ask them the hard questions. Think hard things. Ask hard questions. Don't just follow your emotions into some new religious experience and see how it works. If you're you're investigating Jesus and the claims of the Bible, do it. Do it with all your heart. If I can help you, come see me. Be happy to help you. It's good to be in that stage, but don't stay in that stage forever. I guess what I'm saying is wherever you find yourself today, take the next step. If you really have questions, ask them. Figure it out. I, you know, anybody who is a um, a teacher of the word of God should not be afraid of skeptics and their questions. The Bible actually is true. It actually does hold up. Jesus actually is a risen Savior. And so we don't need to be afraid of someone really smart coming and saying, listen, on a subatomic level, I see what's happening in cells here, and I don't see how that could happen. Listen, that's cool. Ask those questions. We shouldn't be afraid of truth. Take the step. Ask the questions. Or maybe you might be in a place where you know about God, but you're refusing to submit your life to him. Like Jacob was. And my advice to you is take the next step. Just realize that somehow your, your knowledge of God has to travel this 18 inches from here to here. It's got to go from your head to your heart. And until Jesus is actually a relationship of yours, then he's nothing. The gospel is not good news. It's bad news if you don't accept the free gift. So it's time. It's time to take that step and go, you know what? I'm not questioning. I know it's true. I just don't want to give up my right to be in charge of my own life. Guys, Jacob decided to be in charge of his own life and he's sleeping on a rock. How about we trust God? How about we experience his grace? Or maybe you're in a place today where you are experiencing his joy where you are experiencing contentment, where you're experiencing peace and fulfillment. Not that your circumstances are easy, because none of our circumstances are always easy. Maybe you're going through some hard things, but there's this abiding joy, this this knowledge of God that is relational, where you go, it's going to be okay. I have a God to run to, and he puts his arms around me, and he picks me up, and he carries me through these hard times. And what I want to say to you is take the next step, Go deeper with God. Don't back up. Don't be afraid. Press into God. You'll never be sorry that you pressed into God. But don't let yourself go 80 years or 80 months or 80 minutes knowing about God but keeping him at a distance. Wherever you find yourself, I want to encourage you to take the next step. God has an unbelievable plan for your life. What are you waiting for? Let's stand and we'll pray together. Father, we want to thank you for the unbelievable plan you have for us. We confess that from where we sit, we can't always see the plan. And even when you've told us the plan, sometimes our circumstances get our attention and we forget about the plan. And sometimes even when we know the plan, we're not pressing into you. And so, you know, you're the strength. You're the source of supply. You're the power. And we don't have the power to live the abundant life. And so I pray for everyone within the sound of my voice right now, God. I pray, Father, that those who are investigating would ask their questions and you'd answer them. I pray that those who are living without a relationship with you, even though they know about you, would just take a step over that line and never look back. And I pray for those who know you but need to press into you more. Father, um, draw us closer to you. And as we draw near to you, draw near to us. And we give you all the thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.